We've all heard of close encounters of different kinds, ranging from lights in the sky to actual ET contact. But what happens when they get extra close? Today, we're sharing stories of alien sex. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like dark matter. Portals. Bermuda Triangle. Voodoo. Shadow people. Remote seeing. Contemporary dinosaurs. Skinwalkers. Ghost ships. Underground bases. Did I Echoes- say that? <laughs> I guess so. Echoes from the past. Human-pig hybrids. <laughs> Creepypasta. Time travel. Stargates. Sex magic. All that stuff. All that stuff and more. Lots more. I'm Christina Callery. And I'm Seth Jablon. And today we are talking about... Alien sex. Alien sex. Or love, romance, Extracurricular relationships with extraterrestrials. Hookups, all of it. Yep, alien hookups, alien probes, I imagine will probably be in here. Are they? I don't know. We'll see. All right. um, Yeah, so, so, yeah, do you want to go first? I can go first. Okay, cool. Okay, so I have two stories. Okay. And mine are kind of international. Um, uh, So, I... Feel kind of like we need to put some sexy theremin music in here. Okay, yeah, that'd be so good. Yeah, <laughs> Tim, if you could make that happen. Yep. yep okay. <laughs> okay. So my first story um, comes from China, and uh, the person that this happened to, um, his name is Meng Zhaogu, I think. Um, but anyway, in 1994, uh, Meng is a logger, and he was working in the Red Flag Logging Camp or commune in northeastern China. And so he's outside, and he sees what he described as something metallic kind of shimmering on the side of one of the nearby mountains and the mountain ranges. It's the Dragon Mountains. So at first he thought it might be a helicopter that had gone down, and this was like, you know, the glint of the wreckage on the hillside, and he decided to go over and check it out to see if he could salvage any scrap metal. So he made his way over, and when he got near to what he thought was the wreckage, he could see this in the distance. So it existed. And he is quoted as saying, so at this point, something hit me square in the forehead and knocked me out. So he remembers something striking him in the head. He goes down, doesn't remember anything else. But when he came to, he's back at home, inexplicably. He is confused. At first, he's unable to communicate, and he has no memory of how he got home. So it's a complete blackout. Um, So side note, um, after this experience, he developed an extreme phobia of anything made of iron, which is very interesting. Huh, okay. (laughs) So, um, but uh, one night after this, things got even weirder. He was at home, sleeping in bed next to his wife, when he woke up to find himself floating in midair. And then, what he described as a 10-foot-tall female humanoid walked into the room. And he said that she had 12 fingers and braided hair on her thighs. So it's this unique alien style. Um... So she goes over to his bed and straddles him, and they had sex for around 40 minutes. Whoa, while, okay. <laughs> while, the air? Was he still in, in the air at this point? Yes, <laughs> while levitating, oh all while his wife was sleeping peacefully directly beneath them. So this is like a 40-minute sex session, and apparently it was pretty rough because he said it left him with like a jagged two-inch scar in his sort of nether regions. Um, there was one interview that he did where he showed the reporter. He kind of like unzipped a little bit and showed. <laughs> so it sounds like it's his lower pelvis that had the scar. Wow. Um, okay. 
So after it was over, um, this woman disappeared through the wall and he like gently floated back down onto his bed. Um, so one in- interviewer for the Huffington Post asked him to describe the alien and he drew for them uh, what the reporter thought looked like a hairy version of the Michelin man. <laughs> so okay. that was kind of his vision. I'm going to try and find this. We can post it on our Instagram. So she um, was like, like when you first said it, like, like how, how tall was it? Like t- 10, feet 10, tall? 10 feet around 10 so feet it wasn't tall, like three, three meters. It was like a big, huge creature. Stocky, 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 huge stocky strong. Yeah. Yeah. God. You know, it's so weird. The the um braided hair on the legs. I've heard that one before, like in um was it some of those Point Pleasant stories? Like there was that school teacher who was brought aboard a ship. He was like walking home from school or something, got on a ship and he had sex with the um alien. He described like that she had very fine hair on her leg and it was all braided. Isn't that crazy? It's really? Such a weird detail. Yeah. Mm. Such a weird detail. That's but, crazy. Yeah. That is a weird, that's a weird, I mean, that's like a pretty unique style, right? So it's a, that's a really different trend. Yes, so. totally. Okay. So anyway, a month after this happened, he again woke up to find himself floating um, sort of over his bed. And he floated through a world, a map of the world that was hanging over his bed and levitated out into a spaceship that was waiting there where this group of aliens gathered around him. And he said that they were speaking to him in Chinese, but it was with a very heavy accent, so it was a little difficult to understand them. But basically, they explained that they were refugees and that, quote, like me, they wanted to escape their former lives, so they left their dying home. Whoa. Um, Yeah, it's pretty heavy. So at this point, Meng said that he asked to see his alien hookup from the other night. He was like, hey, where is she? Can I see her? And they said, (laughs) and they said, they said impossible. Um, And then he's quoted as saying, but then they said something that made me hopeful in 60 years on a distant planet, the son of a Chinese peasant will be born. Wow. Okay. That's cool. So his space baby, space babies in, in 60 years. So it's like, what is that? Like 40 more years or so. No. Yeah, something like that. 50? No, 30. <laughs> can't Whatever. do math. <laughs> yeah. Space time is, you know, is a definite thing. Anyway. So. Yeah, so there's there's a long gestation period. Wow, crazy. Okay. When did this happen? Cool. What, was, what was the... Uh, this is in 1994. 1994. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So semi-recently. For some reason, it was just like... I don't know, maybe his job or something is making you think he was like old, more old timey, but that's, that's crazy. That's really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like sort of like, it's sort of rough sex and then like, it doesn't sound very consensual. <laughs> and then also then like hearing this sort of sad story of these aliens. But he was looking like, for, so it gives me the impression. Oh, that's that true. Right. Afterwards. And he was like, well, that was like, Hey, can bad. I see her? <laughs> <laughs> my, my pelvis scar is healing. So I can, I could, I could, I could give it another shot. Yeah, okay. So this next one um, took place in Brazil. So on the evening of October 15th, 1957, at around 1 a.m., 23-year-old Brazilian farmer Antonio uh, Vilas Boas was out plowing the fields in his family's farm. Little did he know he would soon be plowing something else. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. Nice. Okay, okay. So, but he was working at night because it was too hot during the day. So he would often work outside at night and, you know, constant. he'd be able to concentrate on his own thoughts. It was kind of like a peaceful, sounds like a meditative sort of experience for him when it's cooler out. So he was on his tractor and suddenly he, he noticed a strange red star in the sky. And as he watched, it appeared to grow larger and closer until finally it cast sort of this pinkish light over the tractor, almost like a beam, like it was beaming down. And then it descended and it landed right in the field in front of him. And he described it as an egg-shaped craft with three spurs like a tripod that it rested on. It's very Mork and Mindy. Yeah, kind of, yeah. 
Maybe that was the inspiration. Yeah. And it had a rotating light on the top, kind of like a ring of lights. And there was a hatch on the side. And while he was watching, this hatch opened and several strange looking beings came out. Okay, um, cool. So at this point, he's like, fuck no. So he was, he was pretty scared and he tried to start the engine of his tractor to make a getaway, but the engine died. So then he got off the tractor and he's trying to run away. Um, but just then he's grabbed by a small creature in a uniform that kind of looked like a diver's suit and goggles. So he pushed the creature away. It's pretty small. He's this 23 year old, you know, young, strong dude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then he was grabbed by three other beings and taken up into the ship. So, um, and that's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. <laughs> so <laughs> once on board the ship, he found himself in this small room with shiny metal walls and ceiling and what looks like fluorescent lighting all around the walls. Kind of what you'd expect, right? Right. An alien um, sex, sex den, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, so five of the creatures restrained him and took him into what was like some kind of con- decontamination room. Um, the room had a, su- he described it as having a support beam that went from floor to ceiling. And there was a table in there and it had several stools, like one-legged stools. So I guess their furniture design was kind of similar okay. to ours. <laughs> um, it was very Danish. Yeah. Yeah, kind of Danish, min- minimalist. <laughs> Um, he said that the beings were all wearing these similar seamless one-piece suits that look like diver suits, and they were gray, the suits were, and covered um, covered the creatures from the neck down to their feet, and that they also wore these helmets that were attached to the suits with metal plates, and um, they had on eye coverings that had this goggle-like look to them. And the helmets were big, so it was pretty clear that their heads were larger than human heads based on the side the size and at the top of the helmets uh he said there were these three tubes that extended out and kind of behind and back into their suits so there's like tube-like apparatus thing maybe for breathing Mm -hmm. something um and then they were also wearing wearing these really weird shoes that he described as thick-soled like jester shoes with turned up toes Whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of like a little design flourish going on that yeah, I wouldn't have expected. These, I mean, like, what's that for? I feel like mo- usually these aliens are, like, wearing, like, real minimalist, like, right. constructivist yeah. outfits. And, like, these yeah. are, like, pretty elaborate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so while all this is going on, they're talking to each other. And he described their language as sounding kind of dog-like with, like, these grunts and growls and bark-like sounds. And they're talking to each other while they're, you know, restraining him. And they start to forcibly undress him. And, you know, he tries to fight them off, but he ends up naked anyway. They get all his clothes off. And they gave him some sort of a sponge bath with what he described as like a clear, odorless, thick liquid. And then... After the bath, they took him into another room that was a little larger, and it had some lettering above the door. And this is kind of fascinating. He said there were these, like, squiggly red symbols in a language he didn't recognize, but he claimed to memorize these symbols and was able to reproduce them later for investigators. So I'm going to try to find that for our Instagram. Oh, yeah, that would be great to see. It would be super cool. Um, So they then did this weird... Um, you know, kind of procedure on him where it seems like they drew blood from him, but they used kind of like these thick pipes. Um, and then they left him alone in the room. So Antonio sees a table kind of in one area of the room. And as he gets closer to it, he sees that it's kind of a cot, you know, with no headboard or anything like that, but it's got a very soft, comfortable material. So he lies down on it. He's had a pretty tough day. (laughs) Um, But then he realizes that there's this strange gas being piped into the room and it starts to make him feel sick. And he ended up, you know, having to get up and vomit in the corner. And then after this happened, he's suddenly joined by this strange looking woman. She comes into the room and she's, you know, he thinks she's pretty hot. She's completely naked. 
He described her as having almond-shaped eyes that extended farther around her head than human eyes do. So I think, imagine they like go kind of off to the side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she had high cheekbones, blue cat-like eyes, an oval-shaped face, and a pointed chin. And he said she had hair that was a silvery blonde color, but it seemed like it was bleached because her armpit and pubic hair were bright red. So, not doing any favors for the redhead brand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again. Um, so, anyway, this woman approached him, and she just gets right to it. She pressed her body up against his, and he said that he instantly started feeling aroused. He said, I began to get excited. I ended up forgetting everything and held the woman close to me, corresponding to her favors with greater ones of my own. It's a direct Ooh, quote. Okay. Yeah. Steamy. Yeah, so it gets... Yeah, steamy. So the alien lady didn't kiss him. Um, According to some reports, um, it seems like she didn't really have lips. But she did bite his chin and make animal noises um, while they were getting it on. And then after it was all over, she looked at him, smiled, and pointed to her belly and then up toward the sky before disappearing. Kind of like, hey, I'm going to have your space baby and it's going to (laughs) be... right. Raised in space. Right. Um, so, like, although he enjoyed, he enjoyed the sex at the time, it really seems like it. It yeah, sounds, sounds pretty like, hot, yeah. Yeah, like, but it seems like afterward he sort of, you know, had some regret. It seems like he felt used and maybe like a piece of space meat because he said all they wanted was a good stallion to improve their stock. Um, after the alien woman left, Antonio went into the next room in the craft and all the other aliens were gathering around. They're talking in their weird dog, dog language and they were sort of ignoring him. Um, pretty rude. Um, but so he's like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to take a souvenir. I'm going to prove to people that this actually happened to me when I get out of here. And he saw this strange clock like thing. He didn't know what it was, but it looked like a clock. So he decided to steal it. So he reaches out to take it, and one of the the beings saw him doing this, and then they're like, okay, you got to go, and they kick him off the ship. <laughs> okay. All right. That kind of sucks. Yeah, it does kind of suck. Um, so then the ship shot up and off into the night sky. Um, okay, so this, this gets even more crazy. Um, he did get kind of a souvenir, but not the kind you'd really want. Um so in, in addition to having some really super understandable PTSD-like symptoms, he had nightmares about being abducted again and so forth and, you know, fears of them coming for him. He started finding these strange reddish burn marks on his body and suffering from all kinds of really strange symptoms like extreme fatigue and headaches and nausea and other really odd things. And he went to some local doctors and was examined and was basically found to be healthy in spite of the, you know, except for the fact that he had these weird burn-like marks. Um, But then he went to see a a professor at the National School of Medicine, and his name is Alago de Fontes. Um, And he was also a a pioneer in Brazilian um, ufology. And so DeFontes believed that Antonio was suffering from some kind of radiation poisoning, which would really substantiate that he had this experience, you know, because how is this farmer, you know, who's living out in the middle of nowhere going to have this, you know. Yeah, I mean, it substantiates that something happened, something intense to the body. Something happened, yeah. Um, so Antonio went on to get a college education. He became a practicing and very respected lawyer. He married and had four children. And by all accounts, he led this very dignified life. He wasn't, you know, given to trying to court the press and get publicity or anything like that. In fact, he kind of like didn't really talk too much about it. But in finally in 1978, um, which is like over 20 years later, he agreed to be interviewed on Brazilian TV just to set the record straight. Because there were so many ru- rumors flying around, and he's like, okay, I'm going to be in- the one in charge of my story right. and this narrative. So he basically stuck to his abduction story throughout his entire life, um, never diverged from it. Um, and sadly, uh, Antonio eventually passed away in 1991. And some sources claim that 
um, it was from a mis mysterious illness that was never really diagnosed properly. And he even came to California to be tested at a medical university and passed away shortly afterward. And supposedly they didn't know what from. Huh. Wow, that's a crazy story. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, a lot of these stories, the, the aliens seem sort of very high tech, like the descriptions of technology and the experience seems very like, you know, like they have a sort of mastery of time and space. Whereas this one, like, it kind of seems like everything's like kind of janky down to the fact that he ended up with this sort of illness, right? Like that right. they were in these like weird suits and like that the fact that they were using gas, you know what I mean? It sounds like, yeah. you know, it doesn't sound like the most, um, you know, you know, as far as like alien sex abductions, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it doesn't. It, you know, it sounds like pretty low tech and sort of like brutal, right? Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, cool. Okay. Um, all right. Well, do you are you ready for are you ready for mine? I'm I'm so ready for yours. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one because this is one that I definitely learned in the process of. Uh, you know, doing this episode and like, I know I'd not heard about this and um, I'm pretty excited about it. It's like definitely like kind of different, I think in a, in a lot of ways um, uh, than, than most uh, abduction stories in general. And certainly even within, certainly within this category that we're doing tonight, but yeah, I mean, so this is the story of David Huggins. Okay. So um, there's a lot of like sensational headlines I could give to this story, but it's it's so epic and so like strangely heartfelt that I kind of just want to like do it all from the beginning. Okay. okay. So get ready, strap in, because this this one's a doozy. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Okay. So David's story um, actually begins in the summer of um, 1951. Uh, when he was eight years old. And at that time, he was living on a farm in uh, rural Georgia, um, where he began having uh, a series of encounters. So it all began one day when he was playing by a tree near um, their barn. And he heard a voice from behind him say, David, behind you. And when he turns around, he sees a strange, uh, short figure covered in a thick brown hair with large glowing eyes. Um, and he, when he looked into its eyes, he found himself unable to move. He was sort of captured by it, right? So then at some point, he's able to break away, um, takes off. Uh, but that later in that afternoon, he goes back to that spot to, you know, where this being had been, right? Like, he's like, did this happen? <laughs> like, you know, so when he gets there, the creature steps back out of the woods. Um, understandably, he's super terrified, runs back to his house, um, but this would not be the last time he would see this creature, and he began calling him the hairy guy. Um, so that same night, he um, awoke in his room and looks out of the window, and there he sees in the tree um, a very large owl with large glowing eyes. Um, it was staring directly at him, um, and then later he dreams of tiny men coming into his room, and when they got close to him, the dream ended. Uh, and this happened repeatedly over the next few nights. With the owl too? Yes. I think, well, with, I think these little men and just, yeah, like the, these, these eyes and just, I'm not sure exactly which sequence, but the, the events like this with this sort of cast of characters started happening to him. Uh, including one afternoon when he was playing, um, he went back down to the barn to get a softball. Um, and he hears this sort of scraping sound from the other side of the barn um, so he goes around to investigate, um, and there he says he saw a very tall, praying mantis-like creature. Um, it stared at him and then proceeded to spray him with some kind of bluish-gray liquid. And so he makes a run for it um, and sort of notices that the, the liquid sort of quickly absorbing into his, um, you know, into his clothes and on his skin, but it leaves no traces. Um, so this is another creature that he would again see many, 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 many times. Um, and he, he refers to him as the insect like being. Hmm. Okay. So um, next, uh, according to David, uh, the land, the land around his home was once uh, a hunting ground for native Americans. So David himself was part native American. I think one of his parents might've been full or part native American. And the other one was also, um, 
And I'm not sure if their sort of ancestry was sort of connected to that area, but he would often go hunting around there for um, arrowheads. Um, anyway, he could often, um, you know, find them around his farm. So one day he's looking for them um, in the field behind his house. And suddenly he looks up and sees eight small beings wearing blue jumpsuits floating down from the sky. So he describes them as just huh? from nowhere, just from nowhere, there's from nowhere from no just literally okay. like slowly floating, you know, not falling, but like in a very controlled and he said sort of soft and sort of graceful way. Right. So he describes them all as small in stature with large heads, light gray skin and huge almond shaped eyes. Um, you know, later he sort of acknowledges them as resembling, you know, the often reported gray. But remember, this is 1951, right? Like That's crazy. Yeah. So, I was even going to say the praying mantis thing is something that you see in alien lore again and again, too. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the first one I've like, blue, read. Where, also, the blue jumpsuits. The blue I jumpsuits? Think. Okay, yep. yeah. So um, I love a jumpsuit, though. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, yeah, and so um, as the grays sort of landed on the ground, as soon as they landed there, they began running straight towards him. Right. And so that's a pretty that's a pretty crazy sight. Right. For any for anybody. Um, But, you know, especially for a I think he's still eight years old at this point. Terrifying. Terrifying. So obviously he panics and takes off running. Um, When he looks back over his shoulder, he sees his pursuers suddenly vanish into the air. And he said it like it was as if they became invisible, as if disappearing behind a curtain. Um, so then later he sees them walking around his house and he said he could look under the house. It was like up on blocks. So he could see their legs sort of milling about there. Um, then later that night, uh, he, uh, woke up in his bed with a start. He looked at his bedroom window to, to, to find a big disc floating in front of a full moon. Um, a group of grays, probably the ones from before were standing outside of the window looking in at him. And he said as, as soon as he made eye contact with one of them, he instantly felt his uh, fear dissipate. Um, and then so one comes up into the house, opens the door, and comes inside. And that's the next thing he knows. He's floating up through the air, held by three of the greys, with another one sort of directing, sort of escorting them. Um, and above them is the huge oval disc. He doesn't see any openings, just glowing light, right? And so all of a sudden, they're inside the craft, um, so then, um, you know, he, then he quickly finds himself in, um, uh, another room, right. And he's there with, uh, a group of, um, a group of grays and, um, he says this room's like, kind of like a metallic room it reminds him of a, a, a doctor's office. Um, and he meets this woman who he will later call Crescent. Um, and this woman will become um, shortly become one of the most important people in his life. Um, so now he's standing next to this small gray who's about his height and um, who he assumes is a boy like himself. And I don't know if that's because of his stature, or if there was something childlike about him, but um, he asks the gray if the big female being is uh, his mom. And they both sort of smile. And um, he later, you know, sort of describes this woman, um, believes her to be a, a hybrid. So he describes her as having very pale skin and large eyes with small lips and a small nose um, and that her hair was long and dark but looked like a wig as if she were trying to affect the appearance of a, of a human woman. And he said although her face was quite pale that her body um, was like a normal human woman and that her skin tone was, was not as quite as pale but was sort of light like, like a Caucasian. Um, so there's like this sort of, sort of like gray white face, you know, on this like sort of pinkish skin body. Um, and he said many of the hybrids had this characteristic that, you know, from the neck down, they appeared just like, you know, earth human beings. Um, but from the neck up, they were, they had the sort of, um, face that resembled sort of the alien sort of face, right? Um, and um, later, David paints them like this. And the paintings we'll definitely get into um, later on, don't worry. But uh, um, he often depicts them as um, fully nude or in long blue cloaks. So, okay, so um, 
aboard the ship, he also meets, this is like later on, right? He's on the ship for a while. Um, he meets a very tall, uh, almost human-looking um, man. Um, in one of his paintings, he's he's um, depicted him almost like stretched out looking. He's so tall. And he's also wearing blue with a large bump, or almost like a phallus extending up from the back of his head, kind of like an antenna or something. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, no, totally. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's totally strange, right? So he took him over to the window and showed him Earth. Um, David said he had an air of authority to him, um, and he believed him to be the one in charge. He said there's actually like a, uh, there was a hierarchy among the species. He said the tall man was at the top, um, and the um, insect-like beings were sort of under him, but kind of in charge. Um, Crescent, the woman hybrid, was sort of at the center of everything, with um, all the other hybrid women around her, and then the greys, he believed, were like workers. That's what I. That's yeah, what I've heard too about. There's like this hierarchy, right? There's like and a the insect beings hierarchy. are higher right. than the greys, and so yeah, forth. isn't that crazy? Yeah, like so, like a hive. Yeah, yeah, but then also like like um, almost like it's like they're more evolved or something like that. Um, but I'll come back to the greys too because there's something really interesting about them in, in relation to this story too. Um, okay, so he has many strange experiences with this cast of this full cast of characters, right? Like very often his stories have to do with this sort of squad of greys, you know, these insects sort of appearing. Um, the, you know, the tall guy thing sort of comes in and out and, and he even says that, um, uh, you know, one day when he's sort of playing around the tool shed, all of a sudden a gray and crescent appear and they sort of, you know, sort of shoo him away from the shed. And as soon as they do that, a black snake sort of slithers out from under it, right. Preventing it from being bit. So they're like totally watching over him and I'm shape shifting or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, another occasion he came, you know, he's he's out playing in the woods and he came across a tall brown alien woman sitting under a tree who sort of beckons him over to him. Um, there's still another where, um, one of the greys, um, show him a baby inside of a glass tube. Right. And he, he really doesn't understand the significance of this until much later. Like he's 10 years old at this point. Okay. So this goes on, I think off and on for a number of years, but I think there's some of them taper off. But one afternoon when he is 17, uh, he again encounters Crescent in the woods. So it's summertime in Georgia and he's off on his way to go swimming with some friends. And to avoid the sun, he's sort of taken this path through the woods. Uh, Suddenly he sees Crescent sitting under a tree he's obviously scared at first, but he's, he said he's quickly overcome with sexual desire, which is something that he had not experienced before. Um, he was at, you know, 17, he's still a virgin. So he starts walking over, she starts walking over towards him and she tells him to lie down. Um, he later said that, uh, he couldn't get his clothes off fast enough. Um, she climbs on top of him and he says the last thing he remembers before he passes out is how close her eyes were to his. And so he wakes up 15 minutes later and doesn't really, doesn't really recall why he's laying on the ground naked. And it would definitely be years before he actually remembered this experience. So a lot of the experiences he had, he, you know, either forgets them immediately or they're sort of shooed out of his mind or they're repressed. It's not really clear like what there's definitely a point where they're like, you know, erasing his memory or, or, or causing him not to remember, but then he'll remember and then forget. And, but later in his life, they all come back pretty, pretty clearly. Okay. So, um, fast forward a couple years later to 1965. Um, he's now 19 and decides to get out of, um, Georgia and make his way to New York city to study art at the art Academy. Um, and even though he's in the middle of Manhattan, um, it doesn't take him long to have start having this, the experiences again. So, you know, he has these like sort of strange encounters um, throughout his day. Like, you know, he goes into this hardware store and it's like this very strange interaction with this woman. And he has these really weird interactions. And remember, like he's, you know, he's sort of dealing whether or not these things are real. Some of them he can remember, but even when he does, he's like, is this really happening to me? He doesn't really understand what's happening to him. I mean, he's the memory of, you know, um, uh, his encounter with Crescent is very, very clear in his mind, but 
he doesn't really know who she is or what her deal is. Well, plus, if you've been having these experiences since you're a child, you're going to question everything that happens, you know. So encounters with strangers are going to be fraught with suspicion and yes. what's going on here. Totally, totally. Imagine. And you're not, I mean, you're going to, on the one hand, assume it's real because it's been part of your entire life, you know. And on the other hand, it's all so strange that um, it's it's hard to it's hard to really make sense of it. So, anyways, after having some of these strange encounters one night, um, he sees Crescent's face in a dream, um, and that night she she visits him and makes love to him. And so I use these words because this is how he characterizes it, right? So um, he basically said after a while she became his girlfriend, right? He he did date someone during that time, but. A number, um, once he started dating her, um, a number of greys showed up to her apartment one night and stood by her bed. And the next day she moved out of New York City and never, never came back. <laughs> so maybe. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, um, so the nightly visit. That's one way to make sure no one steals that's your right, That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so the nightly visits become more and more clear. Um, but he's still not really sure if they're dreams or not. Right. Like he wakes up in the morning. It's just like did that, did that really happen? Right. She would just sort of like appear out of nowhere. Right. This is the middle of Manhattan, right? She would climb on top of him. They would have sex. Um, he said her eyes were always glowing this sort of like hypnotic blue. Um, he said there was always this soft glow in the corner of the room where one of the insect like beings would stand there observing them. So yeah, (laughs) that's kinky. That's awkward. (laughs) Yeah. So, so this goes on for five years, right? With Crescent visiting him two or three times a week. Again, he would wake up some mornings questioning whether or not this was like a dream or whatever. I mean, he, he believes it's real, but it's, it's hard to believe this is happening to you, right? It, it doesn't make sense. So one evening when he's walking home, um, he noticed some beautiful um, flowers in the window of a flower shop, Right. So it gives him this idea. He's going to get flowers for Crescent. And if she takes them with him, it means she's real. And if she doesn't, then he'll just use the flowers for painting, right? He's still he's going to still go into the art academy. Um, okay, so he goes home, puts the flowers on the bookcase um, before he turns in for the night. When he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't quite remember what happens right at first. Um, but then he, you know, he goes to school and he sees some students painting flowers and the memory comes back, right? Something triggers it and he remembers Crescent taking the flowers before she left. Now he knows like she's real, right? And so I think this whole exchange between them opened up something, right? Like in terms of the relationship, but also in terms of his relationship to these, this experience, right? He's clearly embracing it. So um, at these, at this point, the experiences start getting even more clear, so David recalls that um, that night after, right, um, he's waiting for her to return and um, he's going to bed and he notices a shiny dot about the size of the qu- a quarter on the wall. And he feels this sort of strange energy and it feels like his consciousness is being altered, but he's still very much awake. Um, so everything becomes quiet, even the sounds of the city ceases, right, which you can imagine in Manhattan, like, you know, it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's like being out in the, in the, if you're staying at a cabin in the woods, that, that, you know, quiet can be, you know, a, as loud as, you know, a city. So um, very eerie, right? The spot starts glowing bigger and bigger and bigger until it's a quite large, bright hole in the wall. Um, the insect being comes through, followed by Crescent, um, and he feels this very pleasant energy coming from her, Right. So she goes, she starts coming towards him and she, she, I think she sits down in the bed or something and she looks over at the bookcase and then back at David and smiles, like indicating, you know, that, that she acknowledged this thing happened and that it meant something to her. And so she got closer to him and began rubbing her forehead against his. And so he, he says this is like how they kiss in her world. Um, he says it causes this like deep, warm feeling. And I saw this film where someone's interviewing him and he says, um, you know, that everyone should try it. <laughs> so it's like a wonderful experience. But so they start like huh? cats do that. Cats the do that. Bump. Oh, that's right. They do do the that. Head yeah, 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 that's right. 
So, oh, speaking of cats, so um, when they start making love, he says everything feels much more deep to him, much more even romantic, right? And she begins making this soft, melodic sound like a cat purring. Um, and he basically says at this point they were in love, right? And so, you know, it's, you know, the, the story is so great to me because like when he recounts it, it's, he's not, um, he does it in, in this very heartfelt way. This clearly, this experience and this whatever relationship with whatever entity or whatever he had really meant something to him. And it was actually, you know, there was terrifying parts of it, but largely it was this sort of beautiful experience. Okay. So um, there's so much more to this story that, that um, uh, he recounts so many, um, so many memories, so many paintings. Um, but I think the climax of it all is when he is um, one day he's um, sort of awakened by um, them t- sort of th- talking to him through the portal. And he's sort of brought aboard the ship um, because uh, um, one of the, this baby is dying. Right. And Crescent's holding this child and like, he understands that it's his and Crescent's, right? Oh, no. So he... They can't save it? They can't do anything Well, he's it? she's like, you know, the baby's dying or whatever. And he says, let me let me have it or something. They're, they don't want him to touch it, but then he does. And that, he said there's like this like jolt of electricity between him and the the baby. Like like a, like a, almost, you know, like static electricity or something. You know, he like touches it. And then as soon as he does that, it sort of revives, right? And so they're all like pretty happy about this. Um, so one of the, um, one of the, I think it's one of the, um, insect beings, um, is like, oh, okay, that's cool. So brings him into this other room where, um, he sees dozens and dozens of hybrid babies in this nursery. Right. And apparently all of, he's told that all of them are his. And so he goes around to each one of them in the room and touches them. And he said he felt like he was imparting some of his sort of life energy to them. Um, hmm. okay. yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, there's so many, there's so much more to this story. Like, um, st- I'm just going to give some more highlights. Um, so, um, one of them is, um, you know, he starts visiting, he, uh, they start visiting him through the portal and like, that's basically how now how he gets visits from them and visits them. Right. Like, you know, he's in the middle of Manhattan. So this portal opens and he steps through. And then it sort of closes behind him. You know, there's there's one time where he like, you know, he walks through the door and he looks out the window and he sees Earth, right? Basically that he's able to sort of like, what's that? Does What are the details of how he describes this portal? Like, what does it look like? Is it kind of like what you see in the movies with the light kind of like a black hole swirling? No, it's like well, spiral so, effect. So or? it was the one where like, yeah, it's it starts as like a dot in the wall and it just opens up slowly and it's like a glowing light, but eventually it opens up so that you just see, he sees into the ship. And then when he steps into the ship, he looks back and he can see his bedroom. That's really interesting because you know what? Near death experience um, accounts a lot of times describe things that way when they're passing over the other side. Yeah. Seeing a light that like gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so um, he says he, he even visits them one time in a um, underground tunnel structure, right? I think actually when he goes and revives that baby, it's like he he's not really supposed to go there, and they're sort of upset that he's there at first, but Crescent had sort of invited him in. But he said he's in this, like, one of the places he visits is this underground um, complex, which he believes is actually on Earth somewhere. Other times he's sort of visiting him on this ship, um, and he, um, you know, on another occasion, he's actually introduced to these very, two very large hybrids, um, two women, um, who sort of indicate they want to have sex with him and he ends up, uh, um, having sex with them, but it's clear that they're trying to learn like sort of affections, <laughs> learning how to like make love like a human in a way. Like he said, he's still being sort of observed, but he asks everyone to leave the room and it's, it's really, really kind of fascinating all the sort of events that happen it's not just these like single encounters but he has this sort of whole life with them and i think they even try to like i think they ask one of the insect beings if he can stay you know and they're like no no david has to go back um 
And so, um, yeah, and, and I think on another occasion, he, he says he um, sits in on Crescent uh, teaching a group of um, humans and hybrids. He doesn't know where these people came from, whether they were earthlings or not, but they're all kind of sitting around in a room where she's sort of uh, uh, teaching them. Um, on another occasion, uh, he's given a book from one of the greys with these like luminous pages that uh, symbols appear and disappear. And um, he actually does a painting of, I think, one of them. Um, and then one of my personal favorites um, uh, is when a uh, Gray takes a package out of a drawer on a spaceship. When they're, they're in some room in the spaceship and takes this package out and it's composed of this uh, transparent plastic bag. Um, and inside is a, um, uh, a gray uh, alien sort of folded up like a suit. And he says, as soon as he picks it up, um, the he said it sort of comes alive <laughs> inside. Whoa. And it opens its eyes and its mouth and it sort of taps on the inside of the bag at him, you know, like indicating that like, you know. And he says he's made to understand that this was a, a quote, body skin that the greys used. Now, in this sort of... Wait, so it's not alive? It's, it's like a, a lifelike body skin that you... That they live in. Where? Or something like that. Like Whitley Whitley Strieber talks about, um, he said in one of his accounts, he's taken into a room where he's shown these drawers full of like empty bodies, basically, of gray aliens. And he said he's sort of given to understand that that their consciousness inhabits these bodies and that they can sort of, they're almost like, their bodies are almost like vessels to them. Right, they have the ability to move in and out of these bodies and inhabit them, and so the Greys then, you know, potentially wearing different body suits. And I think at even at one point he sort of asked the questions whether they still use those suits, and then he sees that they're they're now now you wearing like more human like suits, so that their bodies are like spacesuits almost. Isn't that crazy? It's kind of like it kind of begs the question of like what dimension do these things come from? Yes, totally. Are they spiritual entities or are they yeah, physical right. entities? Right. Like yeah, yeah, I mean there's definitely a spiritual quality to the whole thing and I mean, you know, we've talked about how like people have definitely had spiritual experiences through more shamanistic means and like some people consider these like interdimensional beings and there's clearly a mastery of sort of time and space and of consciousness going on here and so yeah is you know are they more evolved and that makes them on a sort of different spiritual strata of the world are they some type of spirit right and coming you know into this world right like is this like you know is this on our plane or is it on another one like it's all so you know I think there's so many possibilities about what could be happening here but certainly something is happening here right something happened to this man that happened to him his entire life. And he's very matter of fact about it. Right. But he, he definitely had his struggles. Like he, um, I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this story is all the paintings he made. So, you know, this whole time he's studying at the art Academy, which I don't know if you know, but it's this famous New York art school, um, especially for painting. And, you know, over the course of his journey, he's has, um, at times hard, a hard time assimilating all these experiences. He has this, he talks about this one moment where he totally has this like meltdown and they sort of help him through it and they help. Um, and, and I think as a part of that, at some point, um, one of the tall ones says, um, let David do paintings. Right. And so at that point he embark embarks on this decades long practice of painting all of his memories which help him sort of recover them. Cause I think up until the point of him being adult, he hadn't really at one time held all these memories. They were kind of, he would have them and then things would stop happening. And, and he, you know, so he, he, these um, doing these paintings actually help, help him remember and it helps him remember more. And I've definitely, um, so I saw a film on, on the, um, on him as well. There's also a, a book someone did um, of some of his work and, I, I think they're actually pretty beautiful. Um, there's something very like soft and simple and sort of unadorned about them. Um, they're like very stripped down and guileless, right? Like just like him. Um, there's almost like this like folksy 
quality to them, but with a mm. certain... It's a very lovely description. Yeah, there's sort, sort of a certain emotional clarity that makes you feel like you're witnessing something that happened, right? That you're peering in on this scene, right? There are all these scenes, and they're all very simple in a way where he's not painting anything um, that he can't remember. And I think he even talks about how every single painting is, um, you know, happened. He said he did one painting once where he made something up and they got very mad at him and he threw it out and never did it again. And so there's that quality to everything where there's like this simplicity where he's just trying to capture or, or, or make clear to himself what happened and how he felt. And there, there's like this softness in the colors. Like it's not like you think of like a painting of an alien, this like intense psychedelic fucking, like all these like artificial intense colors, but they're like, they're very sort of sweet and and soft. And um, he actually had a um, uh, a show in Manhattan at some point. I, I sure wish I would have known that was going on. Oh, man. I don't know if it was part <laughs> of the documentary they were making about him, but you got to see the painting. So we'll definitely um, we'll definitely put them up, some of them up on, on Instagram. And then, you know, David himself is very interesting. He's, you know, like um, just watching him in this film. Um, he's very sweet. Uh, unassuming. He actually lives now in Staten Island and he lives a very simple life. Um, he works in a deli uh, and he paints when, when he can. Um, um, he's very matter of fact about it all, right? The way he recounts everything. Um, yeah. And there's something, I think, yeah, like I, I said, think we should have him on. Yeah, oh my God, dude. I don't Seriously. know. I mean, he's definitely one of those people who have shied away from uh, uh, you know, talking about it. You know, I think he's one of the people that talk about it and as a means of himself just trying to deal with it, but he's never really done much with the press or, you know, I think, you know, there's been some, you know, he, he's sort of shied away from, you know, uh, the media about it. But I think, you know, like someone did a film about him. Uh, like I said, one of, someone did a book as well. Um, but other than that, he's sort of quiet about the whole thing. And one of the filmmakers actually goes around and sort of talks to his neighbors and his friends. And it's, it's really beautiful. It's like these, like, you know, it's like old, you know, deli owner in Staten Island's like, you know, he's like, well, would you think this stuff happened? He's like, yeah, why not? You know, <laughs> you know, like this, he's like, why would he, why would he lie about this stuff? Like the, you can tell like the relationships he has in his life. They aren't these, you know, there, he has this, um, I don't know, there's this simplicity to him where he's not trying to insist on anything, um, he's not trying to make anybody believe him, but he's pretty clear on what happened to him. Um, he actually had a son. Um, I think he's d- divorced now, and I think his son's pretty clear on it all. Like it, it just seems like this is something that um, you know he's still, you know his 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 story to me is unique in a lot of the ways, and I think one of those is his relationship to it all. Right, the way he talks about um, uh, Crescent and his sort of love and affection for her, you know, these are like friends of his, right? And he doesn't, it's not this like, you know, very heady Whitley Strieber thing where he thinks that they're trying to like teach him anything or or really experiment on him in any way. And you definitely don't get the sense of him as a victim in any of this. Like hmm. he's not the victim of some crazy unseen force or or delusion or something like sort of unfortunately like that, um, the one woman we you did a story on the the, the ghost uh, lover or whatever you know where you're like something else is going on here and it's not not healthy for her you know what I mean like you don't get that feeling about him he's just this guy who's had these lifelong experiences and potentially does he still fathered. have them how did things he end? does yep he does still have them and I think at one point um, Crescent came to him a little later in his life and introduced him to one of his children who is now like a six or seven year old or something like that. Um, yeah. And like sort of ceremoniously like he like had them meet, but I think he says, you know, their, their visits are less frequent, but he definitely feels this sort of like connection with them. So yes, that is the story of David Huggins. Wow. That is epic. Isn't it? Like, yeah, I can't so wait to see the paintings. There. Yeah, totally. And like I said, like there was almost too much to do. There was too much to do and just sort of one, one sitting it's like yeah yeah he's he definitely has um you know uh quite a bit of uh uh, ranging experiences yeah so yeah for sure 
So yeah, I mean, wh- like, what oh. do you what do you think about all this stuff? Like, <laughs> do you think people are having these these like? You know, not just, I feel like uh-huh. it seems like they're very real to the people that are reporting them. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and when you have people that you know. It's verified by multiple witnesses that they're trustworthy and, mm-hmm. you know, not just attention-seeking. I mean, something's happening to them. Right, right. I totally. just don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's an interview. What do you think? With, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are going to be a lot of things happening here. Like, so they actually interview a some type of um, comparative religions, spiritualist guy, like uh, a professor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure how he knew David, but um, he sort of studies the sim- the sim- the symbols of ufology. And he talks about like how we've had all these sort of like people have had um, all types of experiences, both spiritual on the sort of God level and, and just the level of like, entities entering into the world and interacting with human beings right even some of the original greek stories like all of those gods had sex with you know humans right right or a lot of yeah. them did so, and in and, and and like the old testament in the bible there's right. like the nephilim right. which were i mean it was kind of more of a diabolical thing but basically the fallen angels coming to earth and having sex with women yeah exactly exactly so you know whether you know and he says you know different cultures these experiences and we've talked about that on this podcast right like these experiences they can have a a, a different outer visual expression right like based mm-hmm. on like this almost like the psychology of of the, of the people or maybe they have their own independent you know um um form to them right like some people have reported seeing this um a blue or purple woman and DMT experiences and even talk to her about other people, you know, like met the same person. And so, you know, um, I think there's potentially something interdimensional happening here, something spiritual happening here. Right. But I also don't really see like how far of a stretch it is that if there were, um, if there were other um, more advanced entities uh, visiting here, that there would be some interest in that. I imagine if, human beings, um, you know, evolve to the point where they're sort of traveling around the stars and they're meeting compatible uh, species, that there wouldn't be some scientific interest in that or non-scientific interest in that, you know what I mean? Or, or space tender. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I don't really, I mean, it's no more far-fetched to me than right. the idea of them being here in the first place, right? Right. Well, I mean, I also think about like, you know, bring up the near-death experience phenomena again you know there are constants in all of these reports right yes. from all over the world and and all different cultures but there's like a different frame on each one and so it seems like people see their experience and interpret it based on their cultural conditioning yes, and their right, religious right. beliefs yeah. and so you know maybe something like that's going on here too yeah totally i mean that was i think one of those professor's points was like now all the experiences are in this, you know, uh, um, in this sort of visual language, right? But that doesn't, to, to me, like, personally, I still believe that there are, you know, potentially, you know, more evolved species that are visiting this planet and interacting with us in some way. And I think mm-hmm. one of those ways is, you know, uh, um, is an interest in sort of humans' reproductive um, you know, possibilities. Some of these, uh, so many of these stories actually go back to that, seem to point to that. Yes. I mean, like part of the lore is that, you know, a lot of these species maybe have been, have cloned over many years or, you know, or, or just, you know, that, you know, uh, human beings are a young race or they're just looking at different ways of, um, you know, like human beings did this. So, so just because, right. So back in, we know now that, um, you know, back in the day, we didn't have this very clean evolutionary, this very linear evolutionary journey, right? Like early humans were like fucking everybody, <laughs> right? They, they were they were having sex with Neanderthals. They were having sex with competing. Um, Which is how I'm sapien. here. What's that? <laughs> Which is how I'm here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the ginger genes. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah yeah. 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 I mean, we all have some some of that 
somewhere in us and like Mm -hmm. there's all the different haplogroups and all this and like now we know it's like kind of a mess back there right like everybody was kind of fucking everybody until there was no one around to not to fuck so another species (laughs) (laughs) another species then doing that when i mean we did that on this planet right we traveled to a new region there was a competing species there or there was an older one or a newer one and people were having sex right like if the parts fit together, <laughs> they would do it, you know? And so our evolution was inevitably uh, influenced by that, right? And so imagining that then our species would move on to explore other planets, we would certainly continue that behavior. It's only natural, right? So cool. Yeah. Well, this was a super fun episode. <laughs> super fun. I really enjoyed this story. I feel I kind of feel like David's now like one of this is like now my like straight up favorite story. Like, you know, like I, I love the ones where there's like a relationship over years because it's more than just like a scary like, whoa, this fucking crazy thing happened. It's like but there's there's a certain depth and sort of heartfeltness to this this story that I love so much. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I feel like we did it, yeah. We did it. All right. Alien sex. Alien sex and love. There you have it. And love. So um, cool. All right. So I guess until next time. Until next time. All right. right. Bye. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Javlon and Christina Callaghan. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim.